Sustainability, inclusivity, body positivity. They're the topics du jour, the zeitgeist of our time. And companies and brands have been quick to ride the wave. Aunt Jemima Syrup and Pancake Brand is getting a rebrand. The company says they have listened to critics who have long argued the brand is rooted in racist depictions. Kiwi brands Tiptop and Pascal are joining the ranks of global companies renaming their products because of racial insensitivities. Why, you ask? And a buzzword you've probably heard a lot recently, that word is woke. Reading the room is great, but what happens when a company or a marketing campaign goes from woke to woke wash? And just how easy is it for a brand to be cancelled? Today, Bud Light facing some backlash over its partnership with a trans influencer. Victoria's Secret is apparently ditching their woke rebrand of recent years after it didn't translate to financial success. The Crusaders are our most successful rugby franchise, epitomising the Canterbury spirit. But now there's a growing number of people who think that name should change. But even if you get it right, is there a risk of going too far in the woke direction in an effort to right the wrongs of the past? Kia ora, I'm Wilhelmina Shrimpton, and today on The Detail, we take a look at woke washing and tokenism. Woke comes from the term being awakened, so being aware of certain issues. And in this day and age, obviously, to be woke or to be awake to issues of um, culture, um, ethnicity, gender stuff, uh, DEI, all, all that sort of political correctness, as some people might call it. University of Auckland marketing professor Mike Lee has been in the biz for nearly 20 years. He tells me that while the phrases woke and woke washing are relatively new buzzwords, their meaning actually isn't. And while consumers used to protest or boycott what they didn't like, now in the day and age of social media, they cancel. So I think the whole idea of woke and cancel culture kind of came about or got the big push that it got um, when social media became um, so ubiquitous and people were able to share their opinions and and jump on uh, the bandwagon of other people's opinions um, and things could go viral, obviously, and all, all those sorts of things that social media amplifies. So perhaps it's a movement that's existed for many years, but it's easier for people to hold brands, businesses, individuals to account because of social media. Yeah, exactly. And it's also much easier to protest when you literally can do it from your phone and just type in a couple of characters uh, and be sort of anonymous. And it's fast, obviously, which requires a quick response. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it looks like you're dropping the ball. But that's kind of where things can become a little tricky because it's not every time that a company gets it right. And I know we saw a wave of international brands changing their names in recent years, you know, Eskimo Pies, Redskins, Uncle Ben's and the like, um, completely rebranded in response to greater awareness and activism around cultural, being culturally appropriate and racism. How genuine do you think were a lot of these? Because I almost feel like a sudden move like that, even though you have to respond quickly, can be perceived as being disingenuous. So it's very tricky to know if if these are authentic moves to be more, you know, culturally progressive uh, or if they are risk management sort of uh, activities. And the only people that really know are obviously the people that enact the change at the company level. And sometimes even within the company level, there'll be tensions. So the CEO or the C-suite might have um, all the best intentions of, hey, we need to be more progressive. We need to get ahead of these things and and, and change because society expects us to do better. Um, But in the same company at the front lines or even halfway down middle management, they could be rolling their eyes. But I feel like 
audiences, customer bases, they're really quick to read between the lines and see through that veil of being woke. And case in point is Victoria's Secret. They attempted to be more inclusive. It went down like a lead balloon. They've scrapped their, you know, famous angels and attempted to bring in different body types, but everyone saw through it. Now they're retreating back to sexy. They came out with this line, sexiness can be inclusive. It's so calm. It really can't. It can't. Why didn't it work? And how do you strike a balance between being responsive and also being genuine? Getting that balance between, you know, being responsive and respectful, but not forgetting where you came from or your roots as a brand or, um, you know, what you really stand for and who your core demographic or target audience is, that is a very tricky balance. And sometimes you you can't get it right no matter what because, you know, if, if there are consumers that are skeptical because they've been fooled before or they're just very cynical when it comes to um, anything that's um, commercial, then it doesn't really even matter how well you do it. You there might always be these people that are just going to be cynical about your your approach. Do you think we are more cynical as consumers? And why are we more cynical? I think... uh... I think there is definitely the potential that we are more more cynical because there's just so much more information out there these days and it doesn't take too many swipes to get to the information that you're trying to confirm anyway and you know so humans are are you know well known for their confirmation bias and now we kind of also have this the echo chamber sort of effect on top of that so you only need to be slightly thinking cynical thoughts and it doesn't take too much effort to find other people that agree with you other opinions or other platforms that that say it's all woke washing or it's just uh, virtue signaling Victoria's Secret, I know, have actually backtracked. They've undone their woke rebrand and their, quote, bringing sexy back. (laughs) Um, Can they recover? Can companies like them recover from an attempt like that going down like a lead balloon? Or is it too late? So I think really the only option is to go back to sexy because that's kind of what their brand was built on, right? Uh, And yes, they might have tried something and they might have genuinely thought it was the right thing to do, or at least part of the senior exec team might have thought it was the right thing to do. But clearly the audience has spoken and it came across as fake. And so I think backtracking is really the only option for them, particularly because their brand was known for that, a certain look anyway, right, or a certain sort of... um, brand imagery that came with Victoria's Secrets. I think other uh, other brands that have done it well do it early enough in the conversation are very clear on what their values are and there's alignment between the organizational values and whatever uh, progressive political statement that they're leaning into. Um, and I think those ones are the ones that do work. So if, for example, if Patagonia was going to do something to do with the environment, it would be far more likely to be perceived as authentic and genuine than some other brand, which I won't name, but there could be other brands that are not normally known for, for their you know, environmental sort of credentials. Um, if they tried something now, um, you're much more likely to get a cynical sort of backlash or an eye roll. So it's possible that the cultural zeitgeist of the time isn't necessarily the best fit for every company. And maybe it's actually more beneficial to sit back and go, okay, cool, we appreciate that. We're not going to to dive down that avenue, but maybe there's something else that we can do that taps into the moral compass that will go down well. Yeah, and ideally something that you have a little bit more legitimacy in, uh, something that your brand 
either doesn't have a problem area in or something that your brand, you know, actually is good at. You touched on it briefly in terms of Victoria's Secret that lots of people went to their brand because of this kind of idea of they bring the sexiness to it and then they rebranded, right? Mm. Was there a chance that they lost those original followers? And in a case of brands who maybe do get it right in terms of going woke, is there a chance that they go too woke and they end up alienating their original customer base? You'd have to be careful that you don't shoot yourself in the foot. You're doing these culturally progressive things in the hopes that you will make your brand more relevant to a larger population of people or a growing um, target segment. But at the same time, you don't want to alienate your core base because that's where your money is currently coming in and that's what your brand has been known for. And so if you step too far off the, off the ledge, then you end up losing both, right? Because the people you're trying to appeal to uh, might see you as disingenuous and you don't get their dollar anyway. Uh, and then the people you've basically just abandoned in order to position yourself in a different way through your rebranding or whatever, um, think that you're turning your back um, on them. And so you lose that that loyal support base as well. Do you think with the idea of being woke, cancel culture, there's obviously this tool to hold people and businesses to account, but has we, have we lost the ability to make mistakes? No, I don't think we've ever lost the ability to make mistakes, but the ability to be criticized for your mistakes has certainly increased. But what is probably weighing more on the mind of business leaders and executives and marketing managers and whatnot is this this fear that any decision they make or any mistake that they make could could, you know, take on a life of its own and become some other monster that was never the intention. Um, and especially when it was a good intention that was the original impetus for the um, for the decision. Yeah, so I think the fear of making a mistake has certainly increased. Which is funny because then it becomes chicken or egg, which could potentially stop people from making decisions or changes that would allow them to be more inclusive because they're too afraid. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And there's actually a movement now. Oh, what's it called? Something, it's like the opposite of greenwashing. I think it's called green hushing which is this idea that you could be a company doing green things um, for all the right reasons, but you're actually hushing it because you don't want to be accused of greenwashing. And so companies will actually prefer not to say anything because they think that if they do say something, someone will accuse them of being disingenuous. So maybe that's something that happens as well with woke washing. Maybe we get something like woke hushing where people are doing good things in terms of gender equality or, um, you know, uh, in any number of political progressive things, but not making a big deal out of it. Because when you make a big deal out of it, you kind of invite a spotlight on your brand. And if you put a spotlight on anything long enough, you're going to see something, right? Uh, and so, so, yeah, so that's probably something else that's going to become a little bit more... Uh, salient in the, in, in the next few years is this idea of companies doing things and actually trying to be quiet about it. So it is more genuine. How do you get it right so you're able to shout it from the rooftops in a genuine way? Māori-owned creative agency Run is trying to help Kiwi businesses to do just that, offering advertising and design services through a te ao Māori lens. It doesn't vet existing content like an external consultant does, Instead, it works with clients throughout the entire ideation and creation process. Senior copywriter Leonie Hayden told me part of that includes starting the work on inclusivity before starting a campaign. There's a thousand small decisions that go into a creative campaign from 
which production company to partner with to font choice and paper stock and media buying and all of those kinds of things. And when you come to someone like run and then you add that tikanga lens to that decision making, then you also start to look at things like uh, how do we look after whānau Māori on a shoot? How do we frame people or maunga in a picture without covering their heads or cutting off their heads? Um, how do we create logos that uh, draw on traditional toy Māori but aren't going to replicate anybody's tūpuna whakairo? So we sort of balance those different types of decision-making, the tikanga-led and the commercial-led, commercially-led together, and that's that's the expertise that you're paying for if you engage someone like us. You know, it's not the pretty picture, the pretty logo that's got some kōru in it. It's not the karakia before the meeting. Um, it's actually the marriage of a whole extra layer of expertise as well as commercial expertise. So would you work with a client to help them have a greater understanding before diving into a specific campaign or a specific target? Absolutely. I mean, ideally... A non-Māori client would come to us already with some understanding of how to move in South Māori a little bit, enough of an understanding to sort of respect that there are, are processes that don't maybe exist in their current day-to-day or in, in New Zealand's current day-to-day. You know, There are very specific ways of engaging with each other that involve karakia and whakawhanaungatanga and these are really important to understand the people that you're working with. They're not performative. There's a real meaning behind those processes. Um, If I know where you come from and it's near where my grandparents grew up, we're automatically going to have a better working relationship with each other because it's no longer just the person at the end of an email. Um, And so appreciating those processes right from the outset is kind of a necessary starting point. Um, You know, I will admit that we have actually passed on working with clients because there was zero understanding of that. And it's not a a great launch pad. Mm. What would be your advice to someone who perhaps is starting so much on the back foot they wouldn't be the right fit for working with your agency or an agency like yourself? Where would they even start? Mm. To get them to a point where they're ready, maybe, to make sure those views are aligned. I guess it's, it's what is your why? Why why do you want te ao Māori brought into the work that you're doing? Um, if you've got a good, solid why, then everything else can, can flow from there. But I mean, I'm not sort of talking about, you know, if you don't know your pepeha, then don't give us a call. It's absolutely not the case. Um, it's more just... If you've got a very solid understanding of um, why you either want to appeal to a Māori audience or if you want to increase Māori capability within your own organisation or put a brown face in your ad, if your reason for why is solid, then kei pai. Do you think there are a lot of companies who have the best of intentions or are, they, are there situations or a lot of situations where intentionally they are just trying to tick the box? I think there are a lot of good intentions out there without enough thought behind the execution. Um, and what I will say is that like research is easy to do. Engagement with Māori is easier than you think it is to do. But I will say one thing that we've come across is um, this advent of people hiring 
a solitary Māori consultant or a Māori director and being like, cool, that's done, um, even though our entire creative has come from a you know, a completely Pākehā team. We, we put a Māori director on it, so it should be fine. Um, the best way to engage properly is to engage with a Māori team. So whether that is a smaller team within a larger creative group or a Māori-owned agency, because that means that they get the chance to wānanga with one another on the best creative approach. So that's what we do here at RUN, we have a, um, a Po Ahuria Māori, Ariana Stone, so she's our cultural director. Um, but because 90% of our staff have Papa Māori, um, Ariana is where the sort of the buck stops in terms of making sure an idea or concept is culturally appropriate. But the input into all of those ideas comes from everyone. It comes from their specific rohe, their background, their experiences as Māori. Um, and that way we feel more confident that um, we can create something that is representative of groups of Māori. And it's also important that if you're, say, doing some tourism work in Te Tairawhiti, then you also go to Te Tairawhiti and you try and work with creatives in that area as well. Again, like every part of Aotearoa is so different within Te Ao Māori that you just you you can't be the voice of. You have to constantly be looking to other Maori and other places in the country to help you create that authentically. Mm, it's interesting that you do touch on that point of consultants because I feel like that is the trend at the moment. That's what a lot of companies are doing. They're bringing in external people, but like you say, it's just one person. Yeah. So having a multi-pronged approach or a, a wide range of people is yeah. the better way to go. I think so. And I also think Māori owned is best as well. Um, again, because it just sort of speaks to where the the power stops. Um, and if you're engaging with a Māori owned organisation, um, then you know that that whakaro goes all the way to the top. No one's been sort of stymied in their cultural expression. And then the flip side of that is if you're a bigger agency don't lean on your one or two Māori employees to do all the heavy lifting um, when it comes to the stuff either, you know. Like, I, you know, have heard from a lot of people that they end up being, like, handed the the entire um, te wiki or te reo idea. You know, this is up to you, even though they've done maybe, like, one year of night classes or whatever. And that puts, that puts those Māori people in a really unsafe position. And, again, it means that they have to sort of speak for their people, which a lot of people aren't comfortable with doing but they want to do a good job and you kind of do what you're told by your boss so um it's a lot of weight to carry on your shoulders it's a lot of weight to carry and I would say instead of doing that um just give your Maori staff the tools that they need to explore their identity in the workplace you know whether that's giving them time to have some real lessons at work or just you know, tanga with each other, just some space to be Māori together at work. Do you think that the approach that you've taken with RUN means that you're able to get it right every time? Is there a fail-safe way to do this? Absolutely not. Mistakes will be made because even we don't know what we don't know, you know, and some mātauranga is so specific to a particular iwi or a particular area that we're constantly sort of learning, um, like, for instance, um, I think it was sort of um, a tourism-related thing 
And we know, you know, um, the heads of maunga are very sacred, and so there needs to be a lot of space around that. You don't cut it off. You don't put text across the top of a maunga. Um, and actually there was an instance where we didn't realise that um, it was an entire range of maunga that needed to be represented in every single image of that maunga. And so we potentially caused offence in that moment because that was um, a tikanga that we didn't know. We learnt that very quickly. And, you know, you everyone here has, you know, dozens of those a week. And the important thing is to keep trying, I guess. Um, and I, there's a big difference between sort of tokenism and making a mistake. And it's okay to make mistakes. As long as you learn from them, right? As, yeah, as long as you learn from them. Like one um, example we were talking about recently is um, the warehouse had quite a funny mishap, I guess, um, with a, a piece of stationery that came out and said, Kia pia tora, instead of kia pai tora, which means have a nice day. So instead they had said, have a beer day. And um, I don't know if it caused outrage. I personally found it really funny. But then I have noticed that they've since continued to put out um, stationery and other things with te reo on them. And I was really happy to see that it, that didn't put them off. You know, there might be... It could easily have been a case of like, oh God, we, we made a mistake. We tried with the te reo Māori thing and we, we didn't get it right, so we're just not going to do that anymore. Like, get which, back on the horse, you which know? Which then kind of proves the point of where we're doing it, to take a box as opposed to we're actually trying to learn something that's right. wider and deeper. Yeah, that's right. That's it for today. I'm Wilhelmina Shrimpton. The detail is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. This episode was engineered by Phil Benge and produced by Alexia Russell. Thanks to Mike Lee and Leonie Hayden. Matiwa.